You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. Well, if you have your Bible or your Bible app, grab that and let's go to 1 John together. 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. And if you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you a Bible this morning. There are stacks of Bibles on the tables in the back of the room. You can take one now. You can take one on your way out of worship today. That's our gift to you. And if you don't know your way around the Bible that well, no worries. All the verses that we're going to be studying today are here on the screen, so you can follow along with us. If you're willing and able, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? All Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for us, His people. We stand to show that we are ready to hear now from the Lord. So listen carefully to these words recorded in 1 John chapter 4, verses 1-6. to Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God... Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We are continuing in our study of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, beginning with 1st John. And for the last several weeks now, we have been in the part of 1st John that deals very clearly with this theme of spiritual warfare. Believers, you and I are engaged in an irreconcilable, a continual and irreconcilable war, a spiritual war against three chief enemies, the devil, the flesh... And the world. And these enemies, these adversaries, are allies. They work together. We mustn't underestimate this scheme. To do so would make us easy targets. These three enemies are working together. Now, last week in the conclusion of the sermon, I tried to show you how these enemies work together against us. But if you were here last week, you'll recall that my microphone went out in like the critical moment of the conclusion. In fact, I had even written in my notes, this is the critical moment of the conclusion. That's right when the microphone went out. So I'm going to restate what I tried to say last week that none of you beyond about the second row heard. We can't underestimate this scheme. I want you to see it. Here are the three enemies, and how they work together. The devil is the first rebel, the mastermind behind it all. He and his entourage plant deceptive ideas. That's the first enemy. The second one is the flesh. Now, the flesh refers to our own sinful desires that will remain present within us throughout this life. And so that means that the devil has an inside man. 
The inside man is your wandering heart and mine. Our sinful desires. We all have weaknesses. We have weak moments. And listen to me, the devil knows what they are. Not because he's all-knowing or omnipresent like God. The devil is not God's equal. But he knows our weaknesses because he's been at this for a long time. Since the very beginning, he's had a lot of practice. He has seen many people fall. He knows the baits that work. And he hides the hook well. So there's the devil, there's the flesh, our own sinful desires, and then there is the world. The world refers to this army of influencers and influences that seek to lure us away from the God who is light. The world refers to the normalizers and the popularizers, the ones who take the devil's lies and make them seem like truth. The ones who make evil appear, well, normal. These are our three great enemies. They're working together. And so knowing your enemy then means, first of all, acknowledging that this is is a spiritual attack. We are at war against the forces of darkness. This is a spiritual attack. Secondly, knowing your enemy means knowing that we have weaknesses. Being aware of what they are in our weakest moments. And it also means assessing the messages and the mediums in the world. Discerning. And that's what we'll talk about today. Brings us to chapter 4, verse 1, where we find not one but two commands, two imperatives that John gives us here. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Now that's the first command, and it's an interesting one. It's noteworthy. Do not believe. We spend a lot of time in churches talking about what we should believe, right? You've heard lots of sermons and small group studies on believe this, believe that. And John often uses the verb believe in a positive sense, but here he uses it in a negative sense. Do not believe. See, John understands that belief and disbelief go together. They are two sides of the same coin. Or here's perhaps a better analogy. They are the two sides of the one suitcase that we carry with us throughout life. We believe certain things. They go on this side of the suitcase. We do not believe other things. They go on this side of the suitcase. And then we take that suitcase and we travel throughout life. Here's a very elementary example for you. To believe that 2 plus 2 equals 4 means that simultaneously you must refuse to believe that 2 plus 2 equals 5. You put them both in your suitcase, you take up that suitcase, and you head out into the great big world ready for any math problem that comes your way. Well, at least the most basic math problems. Now, the same is true of theology. To believe certain things about God, God's world, and our place within it is simultaneously to disbelieve other things. There will be times where you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, will need to say, I do not believe these things. But how do we know? How do we know the things that we should say no to? I don't believe that. Well, John says here, test. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. And the verb for test here means a critical examination. It's the type of word we would expect to find in a Sherlock Holmes story. 
John is calling us to discern, to inspect the spirits. This reminds me of the words that the ghost of Jacob Marley says to Ebenezer Scrooge in A Christmas Carol. You will be visited by three spirits. Rather kind of Marley, I've always thought, to let Scrooge know exactly how many spirits were coming. And furthermore, to tell him precisely when they would arrive. You and I are not that lucky. John doesn't tell us how many spirits there are. He does not tell us when they will show up. And what are these spirits that he speaks of? Are they ghostly characters, somewhat like what we find in in the Dickens story, A Christmas Carol? Well, see for yourself here in the text. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God for many false prophets. So he he clarifies it here in the next part of verse 1. These spirits are actually false prophets. They're false teachers. Many false teachers have gone out into the world. John isn't talking about spirits in the sense of ghosts. He's talking about false teachers, flesh and blood people. Why then does he call them spirits? Because he wants us to understand that behind every person is a power. Behind every person is a power. John has already separated all the people of planet earth into two groups. The children of God and the children of the devil. The children of God have Holy Spirit power. The children of the devil, on the contrary, are under the power of the evil one. They are doing his bidding. They are planting his lies. And that's why John calls us to test the spirits. There will be people, messengers, who come into our lives claiming to have a wonderful and spiritual message for us, but they will not be from God. John is calling us to test before trusting. Test before trusting. We should test every Christian preacher, so-called leader. If you're new to Faith Church, you should be testing me right now. Don't you trust me yet? You haven't even heard one sermon. You should be testing. Test every Christian so-called leader. Test every politician, every filmmaker and author, YouTube influencer and game developer, celebrity and professional athlete. Test before trusting. Now, If I stopped the message here, if I just prayed and said, all right, let's go home, you would be alarmed but unarmed. I would not have served you well because we have to hear these commands first, but then we need to learn how to test. How do we do this? How do we now go out into the world and test the spirits that come to us, the messages that come to us? I want to give you five ways of testing questions that we should ask of every message and messenger. Three of these we will find in the text of 1 John. The last two are matters of prudence or common sense. The first is what we can call the Christological test. Or, if that's a new term for you and you don't like it, you can refer to it as the gospel test. The Christological or the gospel 
test. First of all, ask, what does this person claim about the identity and ministry of Jesus Christ? That's the first question to ask. Look at what John says here in verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So John wants us to start with the person and the work of Jesus. This is how we decide if this messenger is from God or from the devil. What does he or she believe, preach, teach about Jesus? Now look, don't be deceived here. A person can use the name of Jesus... And that does not necessarily mean that they are preaching the message of Jesus. You remember the children's bedtime story, Little Red Riding Hood? Remember this story? How is it that the wolf got so close to the little girl, close enough to devour her? How? He dressed as someone she knew and trusted, right? What an illuminating story. That's exactly how evil and error operate. That's a biblical story. It's what it is. You see, we often think that just because someone uses the name of Jesus, or maybe they're, they're giving their talks in a building that has the word church in it, or maybe they carry a Bible, they don't use it that much, but they carry it with them, we think that message is safe, trustworthy, not necessarily. This is why it's insufficient to say, do you believe in Jesus? It's not a good question to ask. It does not tell us enough. The person might say to you, yeah, Jesus is a good teacher, a good man. If he were alive today, he should give a TED Talk. People would listen. The better question to ask is, what? What do you believe about Jesus? So that gets to the heart of the matter. That gets to what they believe about the identity and the ministry of Jesus. If a person says to you, Jesus is a good man, he should give a TED Talk, don't get too close. That's a wolf dressed like grandmother. Don't get too close. If, on the other hand, the person says, Jesus is the God-man, crucified and risen, our Savior and the Lord of all creation, then keep listening. Because that teacher has passed the first test, the Christological test, which is where we must begin. The second test is the biblical test. Slightly different, and I'll show you how. Look at what John says in verses 5 and 6. They, the false teachers, are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So the question to ask here is, what does this person believe about the apostles' teaching? Or is their message consistent with... The apostles' teaching, which is contained in the Bible. See, when John uses the word we here, when he talks about whoever knows God listens to us, he's talking about the apostles, the eyewitnesses of Jesus. They walked with Jesus. They received the instruction from the mouth of Jesus himself. They recorded that, and we now have this apostolic instruction in the Bible today. We have reliable accounts, reliable teaching. Because God, the Holy Spirit, empowered these biblical authors, ensuring that they recorded His 
message. So we can say it like this, God is the source of Scripture. And because of that, the Bible is our ultimate authority. And to say that the Bible is our ultimate authority means that every message you and I hear, we must take it to the Scriptures to see how it measures up. Is it consistent with what is taught in the Bible? That's the biblical test. Now, as a side note here, what if someone comes and says that they have had a vision or a dream or some sort of experience and they believe they have heard a new word, a fresh revelation straight from God himself? What should we do when something like that happens? At another church where I served in the past, we once had a gentleman come fully convinced that he had heard directly from God and that he had a message for our elders, for our leadership team. We didn't know this gentleman that well, but he was in the church, so we invited him to come and sit down with all of our elders one night in a meeting and share what he thought he had heard from the Lord. So we gathered around this big conference table and we let him speak, and here's what he shared. He claimed that he had a vision. It was a vision of our church, and it was packed out, people everywhere. And in his vision, I walked onto the stage, and I started preaching. And as soon as I started preaching, a gust of wind came across the congregation, and the Holy Spirit left us all. So he claimed, and he fully believed this, that the, the Lord had given him a vision indicating that if I continued preaching, the Holy Spirit would abandon our entire congregation. Now, he fully believed he had heard from God. He had a vision. How do you argue with a vision? So here's what we did. Our elders stopped. We prayed. We came back to that gentleman, and we said, Sir, with as much love in our hearts as we could muster, we looked him in the eye and we said, Sir, you have not heard from the Lord. Here's how we know. Because in the Bible, which is God's word, God is not going to contradict himself. In the Bible, we have a clear command for pastors to preach the word. In season and out of season, preach the word, preach the gospel. We believe that's what's happening here. And so, sir, we love you, but you have not heard from the Lord. You have been deceived. And we love you enough to try to help guide you back to the truth. See, in the same way that someone can use the name of Jesus and not necessarily be preaching the gospel, it doesn't mean that just because someone plays the God card that they actually have heard from the Lord. We must apply the biblical test. The Bible is our ultimate authority. That's the second test. Now, there's one more here that we see in the text of 1 John, and that is the moral test. The moral test. Here we shift away from the content the teacher is delivering, and we look at the conduct of the teacher's life. Now, where the first two tests really can be, can be applied pretty quickly and with one well-crafted question, we need a series of questions here. And I think we should use the questions that John has given us in the letter so far. He's given us all sorts of evidences. How do we know that a person belongs to God? How do we know that a person has been transformed by the power of the gospel? Here's what John has talked about so far. Does this person walk in the light as God is in the light? 
How does he regard sin? Is he disturbed by his sin? Does he fight against it? And at the same time, is he confident in the Savior's work? Confident in Christ. We have to have both of those things. Does she submit to God's commands? Not perfectly, but consistently. Is he Jesus-like? His attitude, his words, his actions... Does she love the world and the things in the world? Do they look like the world or do they stand out? Do they live like children of God or children of the devil? Do they practice righteousness? Do they show love, sacrificial Christ-like love for their brothers and sisters in Christ? See, if a teacher is genuine, if a teacher truly is from God... The gospel will have taken root in that person's heart and produced fruit. The gospel always shows itself. It manifests itself in the way we live. So that's the moral test. Now, there are two more. The first three, I told you, we find in the text of 1 John itself. The last two are matters of prudence or common sense. We'll cover them quickly. The fourth test is what we can call the communal test. The communal test. So if a message or messenger comes to you in person, on TV, in a book, whatever, and you're just not really sure, strikes you as a bit odd, you can't really think of a a biblical text to kind of put on it, you're just not really sure what to do with it. A wise approach would be to find a brother or sister in Christ here in your own community and ask them what they think. Someone within your own denomination your own church family, your own small group. Tell them what you've heard, read, seen. Ask them, hey, what what do you think about this? Now make sure you ask someone who thinks with their Bible open before them. That's important. The person you ask makes a huge difference. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, two heads are better than one. Not because they are infallible, but because they will not likely go wrong in the same direction. So your friend, your believing friend, he or she might see something that you have missed, might spot something that for whatever reason, hey, you just didn't see it. So that's the communal test. What does my believing friend, who I know and trust, what does he or she think about this message? And here's one more, the historical test. This is similar, but now instead of asking someone here in our own church family, You're asking someone who is dead. You're thinking about some of the early Christian writers. See, here's the thing. You and I are not the first readers of Scripture. We're not the first interpreters of the Bible. Many faithful readers and interpreters have gone before us, and they can be tremendously helpful for us. Many of the false teachings that we encounter today were there in the early church. They were just dressed differently. They were just dressed differently. They looked a little bit different, but more or less it was the same deception. And Christians long ago pointed it out, saying, hey, that's deception. Don't be fooled by it. I know the bait looks good, but there's a hook hidden in there. Don't go for it. And so knowing the Christians that have gone before us, knowing their writings, learning from them, that will protect us from false teaching today. 
Let me give you just one example of this here. One of the most helpful writers on this subject of spiritual warfare is a man named Thomas Brooks. He was a Puritan writer. He lived from 1608 to 1680. So what, some 400 years ago. He wrote an insightful book with a very memorable title, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. There's a good title for you. Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. This is such an insightful work that I'm going to come back at the end of this series on 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and do a bonus episode, a bonus message on Thomas Brooks' Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. But let me give you a taste this morning. Brooks identifies toward the end of this book seven characteristics of false teachers. How do you know a false teacher when you see one? Well, here's the list that Brooks came up with 400 years ago, and it still works today. Here's what he says. First, false teachers are men-pleasers. They preach more to please the ear than to profit the heart. They're going to sound good. They're going to sound good. You're going to like listening to them. Catchy things to say. Second, they are mudslingers. They cast dirt on the faithful messengers of the gospel. Why? Because they want your attention. They want you listening to them, following them. They don't want you listening to faithful preachers of the gospel. That's not going to do them any good. So they're mudslingers. Third, they are venters of visions of their own heads. In other words, they get a lot of fascinating ideas that they like to share, but there's not a biblical basis for any of them. You don't find them in the scriptures. Fourth, they pass over the weighty things of God's word. Why? Because they're worried about offending people. I don't want to offend anybody because I need, I need followers. So we're not going to talk about things like the wrath of God, the blood of Jesus, the seriousness of sin. Now, those are, those are unnecessary topics around here. They camouflage their dangerous principles with golden expressions. They know sugared poison goes down sweetly. Tastes good at first. They strive more to win men to their side into better men's souls. So they don't really want anything for their students. They want something for themselves. Which leads to the last one. They make merchandise of their followers. They, they eye your goods more than your good. Oh, I love that expression. They're after you because they want something from you. They want your money. They want you to be a follower. They want to amass this large following all centered around them. This is how you know a false teacher when you see one. Brooks is tremendously helpful, along with a long list of other writers and thinkers from church history. They can help us spot the errors of our day. Test the spirits, John says. Test before trusting. We've talked about how, but understanding closing all of this. All of this has... Some assumptions built into it, right? These five tests, each one of them has an assumption attached to it. The Christological or the gospel test assumes that you know the gospel, that you know it well. The biblical test assumes that you are in the Bible, 
and therefore know what is biblical teaching and what is not. The moral test assumes that you can recognize the fruits of the gospel, which again means that you and your household must be in the Bible, where we learn about what a gospel-transformed life looks like. The communal test means that you are embedded in a Christian community, that you have brothers and sisters in Christ that you have serious spiritual conversations with. And then the historical test assumes that you are a student of Christian history, that you care about Thomas Brooks, people like him, faithful teachers of the word who have gone before us. So you see, here's what I'm getting at. If you and your children, your grandchildren, if you're not in the word, if you're not participating in small groups, if you're not making corporate worship a priority, these assumptions will not be in place. You will then be an easy target. This is why we talk so much at Faith Church about the importance of what we're doing right now, gathering together for the purpose of worship and instruction from God's Word. Look, we're not trying to entertain you. I hope you know that. I do not care a bit if you are entertained today. There are a hundred other things you could be doing on a Sunday morning, and me too. And all of them are far more entertaining. We're not trying to compete with that stuff. We're not trying to entertain you. We're trying to equip you and your family for the battle. That's what this is about. See, you'll never prioritize worship if you think about all the other more entertaining things you could be doing on a Sunday morning. Man, that's apples and oranges. No. No, we want to equip you because we love you and we care about you and your family. And our enemies, the devil, the flesh, the world, they don't take spring break. They don't do Sunday fun day. They are our undying foes in this life. And so if we are going to be ready for the attacks that certainly will come our way, we must be people of the word. We need Christian community. We need corporate worship. We need again and again to return to the good news of the gospel. That is our best defense. The gospel itself. We want to be a place where the good news never becomes old news. So we're going to celebrate communion right now. Will you pray with me? God, as we transition into this time of communion, as we come to your table, Lord Jesus, we are mindful of these enemies. It is our desire to know something about them so that we will not be easy targets. God, we want to be people of your word. We want to have the ability to identify the deceivers, the false teaching and teachers when it comes our way. Lead us into the truth in our homes, in our small groups, as a church family. God, we pray your protection 
against these three enemies. Protect us from the devil. Protect us from our own sinful desires. From the influences of the world. And God forgive us for the times we have fallen. Each one of us in this room, we have made mistakes. We have done things that we are ashamed of. Things we thought we would never be capable of doing. But in our moment of weakness, when we let our guard down, we sinned. We fell. We make no excuses now. We confess our failures to you. And we thank you, God, for the good news of the gospel. The good news that sinners like us, we don't get what we deserve. <laughs> because of Jesus, we can be forgiven cleansed a fresh start oh it is good news and we celebrate it together today in Jesus name